Hello, thank you for joining us for this podcast with A.S. Dillingham. We're going to discuss his recent publication, Oaxaca Resurgent. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, could you do a quick introduction for our audience? Thank you, Jordan. Thank you for having me. Um, well, uh, yeah, so um, I am a, a professor of history at Albright College uh, in um, Pennsylvania uh, in the United States, and I have recently uh, published uh, my new book, Oaxaca Resurgent, uh, uh, Indigeneity, um, Development and Inequality in 20th Century Mexico with Stanford University Press. So thank you again for joining us. Uh, I'm really interested to hear what, you've, you, what your personal experience was like for creating this book. So could you just give us a quick overview of the themes and focus of your publication? Sure. So in Oaxaca Resurgent, you know, I try to tackle what I think is one of the kind of major topics in global 20th century history, which is the history of uh, development and modernization, right? It's kind of oftentimes state efforts uh, to develop particular regions or modernize particular places. Um, and my research looks in particular the kind of intersection of modernization and indigenous peoples or indigeneity, right? Um, uh, many development models targeted particular regions as underdeveloped precisely um, because they understood them as being highly indigenous regions or regions with large numbers uh, of indigenous peoples. And so the book tries to kind of tackle that big question and think about indigeneity and modernization and um, challenge some ideas that oftentimes uh, created a dichotomy between a kind of indigenous as traditional and backward and modernity as something, you know, kind of progressive uh, and distinct from um, so-called traditional societies. And so I kind of tackle that question in uh, with a history of the Southern um, Mexican state of Oaxaca, which is, um, you know, borders uh, Guerrero uh, to uh, its west and Chiapas to its east. And just south of that, of course, is Guatemala. And so the book kind of examines those issues uh, through a social history of Oaxaca in the 20th century. And so it looks at um, Oaxaca from basically the post-revolutionary uh, period in the 1930s after uh, the 1910 Mexican Revolution. And it kind of gets us um, a kind of end in 2006, where there's a, a major um, social movement uh, led by indigenous teachers in Oaxaca. And so uh, the book tries to look at both federal policy uh, in terms of indigenous development or in what in Latin America is called indigenismo, uh, as well as the kind of response by ordinary people. And so it tries to look at both that kind of federal policy, but also kind of where the rubber meets the road in terms of what did these um, policies or reforms look like in particular places uh, in Oaxaca. So uh, one of the terms coming out of the, the book that interested me was the idea of uh, double-blind indigenismo. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, so yeah, so I use double-bind uh, of indigenismo as a, a kind of concept that ties together the different chapters. And I mean, to give listeners a, a sense of it, you know, a lot of the scholarship on indigenismo um, has critiqued indigenismo as fundamentally a state project that... Um, defines indigenous peoples on the state's terms, right? And so uh, examples of this would be, you know, the kind of Diego Rivera's murals in the Mexican National Palace, which 
depicts indigenous peoples and an indigenous past, but do so perhaps in a romantic way uh, and oftentimes uh, in terms of state projects in a way that identify indigenous peoples as in need of some kind of reform or modernization, right? And so uh, indigenismo uh, both celebrates indigenous people, but oftentimes casts them as a problem to be overcome. And so I use double bind as a way to kind of reckon with the contradictions of that kind of government discourse and policy. Um, because while indigenismo does, in a sense, other native peoples and frames them as some kind of object of state policy, it nevertheless does kind of um, identify indigenous peoples as an important part of um, the country or society. And so the double bind is a way to kind of capture that contradiction and think about how that contradiction plays out, you know, over the course of the 20th century. And another uh, part that caught my attention was you mentioned how uh, historians have overemphasized the Mexican Revolution. Uh, and that really stood out to me as, you know, often historians will look at any period in the 20th century and apply the Mexican Revolution to understand it. They'll find the revolution in anything. Uh, and for me personally, I find it can be quite trite and you eventually come to some trivial uh, work. So I was wondering why you chose not to use the Mexican Revolution as the focus point. Yeah, um, I think that's a really uh, important question. Obviously, you know, the Mexican Revolution of 1910 is one of the most important revolutions of the 20th century. It is a social revolution that is contemporaneous with the Russian Revolution of 1917. Um, the Mexican Revolution is one that overturns, you know, a decades-old dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz and inaugurates a period of social reform and, importantly, a constitution, the Mexican Constitution of 1917, which continues to be Mexico's constitution today, that um, guarantees a number of social rights, right? So the Mexican state is a state that's founded in the 20th century, uh, which I think is quite interesting and compelling, particularly for someone coming from, you know, the United States, you know, the U.S.'s constitution was written, you know, in the 18th century and reflects that period. And so you know, I think the Mexican revolution um, is important historically and we live with its legacies. I think conversely, what it meant is that a lot of historians of Mexico spent most of their time talking about the Mexican revolution uh, trying, you know, in debates about the nature of the revolution. Was it a revolution? Was it a, just a great rebellion or revolt? Um, and then, of course, they spent a lot of time talking about um, the uh, Institutional Revolutionary Party or the PRI um, that comes out of the revolution, eventually consolidates itself as the ruling party of Mexico, which dominates Mexican history, you know, up until 2000 when the former president of Coca-Cola in Mexico, Vicente Fox, uh, is elected. And so, you know, I think that there's a way in which historians have been so caught up in trying to understand that post-revolutionary state and the political party that dominates the Mexican system, that sometimes it disallows us from thinking about how Mexico uh, shares a, a kind of global or hemispheric history with, you know, other um, countries. And so one of the ideas that I had in the book was to think about how Oaxacan history um, doesn't just fit into Mexican history, which of course it does, but also speaks to kind of broader, you know, hemispheric trends. Uh, 
I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, that's a good answer. Thank you very much. Um, so moving on to a, a more personal question, uh, I was wondering, like, why did you choose this topic? Why Oaxaca, uh, and why like indigenous? What was it that uh, was it a personal connection to this, or uh, what was the academic interest? Right. Yeah, when I was beginning to think about, you know, graduate study in history. Uh, I didn't really have much interest in Oaxaca or kind of rural regions more generally. Um, I had been interested in what, you know, scholars now are kind of the, calling the global 1960s, right? I had myself had participated in student activism in university and so was interested in the history of student activism. And I had studied the Mexico City 1968 student movement um, and was very interested in that topic. And, actually kind of did a research paper looking at the Mexico City student movement and, and dissident media in Mexico. But in 2006, uh, when I was about to start a doctoral program, I um, signed up for a Mexican history seminar that was held in Oaxaca City in the state capital. And so, you know, I was basically, you know, a kind of graduate seminar uh, crash course on modern Mexican history. And over the course of that summer that I spent in Oaxaca City, the annual kind of May 1st teacher's strike, which had been going on for a few decades in Oaxaca, that was a kind of um, routine affair that involved a May 1st strike, negotiations over salaries and work conditions, and then, you know, a kind of settlement. In 2006, that routine thing became historic precisely because uh, it went kind of off the rails. And the Mexican governor at the time, Ulises Ruiz Ortiz, uh, refused to negotiate. He sent in riot police to attack the teachers. They were firing tear gas from helicopters. Um, and that sparked a kind of popular support for the teacher strike uh, that didn't even necessarily exist in the early months of that summer. But over the course of the summer, a social movement developed that surpassed the existing teacher um, kind of uh, union leadership. Some people compared it to the Paris Commune because the social movement started organizing um, security and garbage collection in the city center. And this was all taking place, you know, outside the, you know, the seminar room, right? We'd be sitting trying to talk about Mexican history and you could hear marches or I'd, you know, try to get a bus to, to the seminar and, you know, the roads were blocked. And so that's, you know, how I became interested in Oaxaca was basically trying to understand what was happening around me. Um, where this dissident kind of movement came from, um, because I had understood that, you know, the teachers union had been a kind of key part of post-revolutionary state building, right? And so the teachers union oftentimes was tied up with the institutional revolutionary party um, and kind of top-down politics. So the book kind of started and my interest in Oaxaca started because I was like, okay, well, where do these dissident teachers come from who seem to be engaged in a kind of more grassroots politics that was challenging authoritarian power? And so that's, you know, that's a kind of concrete experience that led me to studying Oaxaca uh, and, and Oaxaca's history. Okay. Um, I mean, that makes me think of the, you know, the kind of personal experiences that I've had at certain times. And then as a student of history, one of the challenges is then okay, so I've got this interest, I've got this kind of, this topic I want to study, but how am I going to use an archive and how am I going to find sources that cover this? And this, I think, is what distinguishes 
you know, a historian from many of the other social sciences and humanities subjects. So how did you begin to uh, find the, re the sources for your research and what did you use? What method did you use? Right. Well, I think the first kind of step in terms of identifying potential sources was, you know, Oaxacan scholars had kind of counseled me that I should look at bilingual teachers, indigenous bilingual teachers, and bilingual teachers in, in Mexico is a official kind of category, right? Uh, maestro bilingue, um, that are oftentimes staffed in schools uh, uh, that have large numbers of indigenous language speakers. And so a number of Oaxacan colleagues said, you know, these bilingual teachers, they constitute a kind of distinct current within um, the teachers movement. And so one of the things I went about doing was uh, trying to learn Mixtec, which is one of Oaxaca's many indigenous languages. And so I signed up for a Mixtec language course um, and I spent three years studying Mixtec. And that I think was important. Um, you know, Mixtec is a tonal language, a pre-Hispanic language. It's not easy to learn for a native English speaker or even a native Spanish speaker. But I think that that language training was useful because it connected me to a number of kind of uh, language activists and you know, teacher activists, people involved in indigenous education. And so my mixed tech instructors would then, you know, introduce me to other teachers um, and people involved in indigenous education. And, you know, and you can kind of imagine how it's cumulative, right? You know, one teacher vouches for me, introduces me to another colleague, and so it goes. And so, you know, for the archival, I mean, for the research, there was both kind of an an oral history component, which oftentimes involved interviews with those teachers. And then there was also um, an archival component, right? And so uh, I, like lots of historians of 20th century Mexico or mid-century Mexico, ended up relying um, in, in a significant degree on the um, declassified files of a Mexican intelligence agency the uh, DFS or the Dirección Federal de Seguridad, which would basically be kind of the equivalent of the FBI in the United States. And so when I was doing archival research, you know, I found um, in these security archives documents in which federal authorities were surveilling, you know, uh, spying on people, you know, including Oaxacan teachers, Oaxacan politicians, um, anthropologists, who worked for the federal government, uh, you know, this is, this is a domestic spying agency. So they kept files on everyone. Uh, and so, you know, basically the book involves both these oral histories as well as the archival research um, and not just security files, you know, the archives of the Mexican um, uh, Ministry of Education, uh, the, uh, what is, was called the Instituto Nacional Indigenista, um, which is the Indigenous Development Agency. Those are probably the major kind of archival collections that I consulted for the book. Thanks, it's uh, fascinating to hear those uh, two, two very interesting approaches that you used. This, this made me add a few more questions here. Uh, I'm gonna start with a question related to the oral history. Did you, in the end, manage to connect the oral history interviews with those uh, primary sources that you found in the DFS? Yes, I did. Um, and of course, that uh, 
that is as a historian a kind of exciting moment when you see two sources kind of confirm each other right i mean you know uh, we know that human memory is you know you know incomplete and that sometimes our memories confuse different moments uh, or different uh, individuals and so uh, it was nice to, after conducting an oral history, to actually find confirmation of particular events or conflicts in the archive. Um, you know, one of the things that one would notice is that the um, intelligence agents would take down names, but, you know, sometimes there would be small, you know, spelling errors, right? And so it would take me a, a few uh, read-throughs to figure out, oh, they're talking about this similar individual, um, or for example, you know, I, I interviewed a teacher who had been involved in basically the ruling party's faction within the teacher's movement, um, which is called Vanguardia Revolucionaria. And, you know, that faction eventually loses power. And so um, it wouldn't be necessarily, a, for many people, something that they would want to freely admit that they had been part of that faction. Um, and so doing the archival research allowed me to identify that this teacher indeed had been part of Vanguardia Revolucionaria. Uh, and the way that that was narrated in the oral history was um, much more opaque, right? And those details were kept vague, right? And so I think there is a nice way in which for historians, you know, working on the 20th century, you can, you know, make these two different um, uh, data sets kind of speak to each other. Um, and, but of course it's delicate, right? Because you, um, you know, and while you're doing interviews, you aren't, um, you want to be respectful and respectful of the memories that people have. And so sometimes there would be times where I had read about an event in the archive and I would sometimes share that with an interviewee. I might show them actually a physical document. Like this is a document that I found from 1975. And sometimes that would be useful um, in terms of generating further conversation. Um, but other times, you know, some information maybe wasn't worth sharing at the time or that might have been traumatic for me to talk about what, you know, a, a federal security officer thought of things uh, or their claims that may or may not have been true. It must have been a very interesting experience for those who had lived through that and then seen a, a primary source uh, on their own lives. Yeah. Yeah, no, I certainly there were people who uh, I think, you know, many of them kind of assumed that maybe the government was keeping tabs on them. But for a, a scholar to say, here's a document that shows that the government was keeping tabs on you, I think is um, can be a startling moment um, that, you know, can maybe be you know, shocking or frustrating um, or maybe a confirmation of, of what they already uh, knew. Uh, I want to go back to what you were talking about on the mixed text language and um, your experience of doing the language training. I thought it was a really interesting way to, uh, you know, incentivize yourself to learn that language. You know, it's very difficult to, to learn anything that isn't based on Latin, you know, Latin roots. Um, and it just made me think about how many historians focus on Mexico City when it comes to Mexican history. And I was wondering how how you found using uh, the secondary sources as well as the primary sources together when it came to research in Oaxaca, when most of the work is really centered on Mexico City? 
Right. Yeah, I mean, you raise a, a number of important points. As I said, for example, I was interested in, at the beginning of my kind of graduate studies, student politics in, in Mexico. And so what I had read about was Mexico City student politics, right? At the National University, the UNAM, or the Polytechnic Institute, the IPN, um, those was the kind of student movements that I was first familiar with, right? And and as you're suggesting, right, I mean, the Mexican political system is a highly centralized system based in Mexico City, and a lot of our scholarship has focused on that. But there is scholarship um, by Mexican scholars, um, but also, you know, um, foreign researchers on, you know, um, different regions of Mexico. Um, and there was a kind of boom of regional studies in, say, the 1990s. I mean, what I found useful was there was um, Oaxacan scholars who had studied student politics in Oaxaca City in the state capital. So there's a Oaxacan scholar, Victor Raul Martinez Vasquez, who's written a lot about Oaxacan education um, and, and pointed out which I links which I thought were interesting of Oaxacan students who had studied in Mexico City um, or had traveled to Mexico City, made connections with student activists in Mexico City and then brought some of those ideas and politics back to Oaxaca. And so oftentimes there's a kind of cosmopolitanism in student movements in Mexico in which people in Oaxaca are quite aware of what's going on in Mexico City. Um, and sometimes there's direct relationships through you know, activist organizations. Um, so you know, I think one of the challenges for me was to identify the existing secondary literature on the region. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges is that in researching Mexican history, of course, is that because as we were discussing, there had been so much focus on the revolution and the post-revolutionary period in the archives, kind of after 1940, things become less organized and less easier to access, right? And so um, that's, I think, a product of that scholarly interest in the earlier period. And also just that, you know, archivists are still working through categorizing kind of the mid-century. Um, and so in some ways I had to pair for the post-1940 period, um, some archival material, the oral histories helped for that period. And then also more some secondary scholarship or mm, kind of social science or journalism, you know, on the 1960s, 1970s, you know, the, um, you had kind of the growth of a, a more, um, interesting journalism in Mexico in the 1970s, for example. And so you could find journalists doing interviews um, of subjects that I, I was also interested in or finding pieces of information in the archive. Okay. That brings me on to uh, the next thing we want to talk about, which was post-colonial theory. I mean, to, to start that off, I just wanted to ask how, or talk about how previously scholars would maybe undermine anything that wasn't written in English. Uh, and I was wondering how you feel that attitude has changed, uh, especially during your experience uh, doing your research uh, since 2006 to now. Right. I mean, I think that, you know, the, as your question suggests, um, the academic world is, of course, shaped by the inequalities uh, and legacies of colonial inequalities. Um, just as much as any part of uh, society, right? And so I think for those of us, mm, say, you know, in the global north doing research 
in, in regions that, you know, form part of the global South, that's something that we have to pay attention to and be attentive to those kind of uh, inequities and imbalances of power. Um, you know, as, as I started graduate school in 2006, there were explicit conversations about those inequalities. And we read, you know, deprovincializing Europe uh, or, you know, other kind of post-colonial theory um, texts. And I think there was a sense, at least in my graduate program, that it was important to engage in scholarship written in Spanish, right? It, 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 at the very least, right, in the language of the country that you're studying. And so I think that's still, um, just because we're aware of that as scholars doesn't mean we've kind of resolved the issue. Um, one of my challenges, of course, is I'm research and writing about a particular place in Mexico. I'm then usually publishing in English. And so um, I'm using sources that are going to be intelligible to an English language audience. And so some of those can be Spanish, but there's, I'm going to also have to engage in English language um, sources as well. Um, and, you know, I think one has to be attentive to that. One of the ways that I've tried to deal with that is, for example, in a journal article I wrote uh, called Indigenismo Occupy that I published first in the Americas, which is an English language Latin American history journal. I then um, uh, had contact with a Oaxacan um, social science journal, Cuadernos del Sur, and they, it went through a peer review process there, and then um, they translated it into Spanish. And so it was kind of important for me to have some of my scholarship available in Spanish because then you know, particularly, you know, if you're doing oral history, you've built relationships with people, right? And so I could take that Spanish language article and share it with teachers, um, other interested, you know, colleagues. And I think that's a small um, but important way that we can try to break down some of these barriers is look for opportunities to translate our own work, um, uh, or make our, our work more available um, in the countries that we're researching. It was really interesting that you said that you managed to publish it in Spanish as well. Um, I'm going to ask a question that really I think is, is valuable for us graduate students who often aren't that familiar with the rules and regulations of publications. Uh, so whenever I thought about writing something, obviously your first time writing English, your, uh, for me is my you know, first language and it's also like where I'm studying. But then also, like you say, would like to publish in Spanish, especially for example, more research at the moment, which is on coffee in Puebla and Oaxaca. And these people that I've interviewed, uh, they're never going to read my, my writing in English. So it'd be great to have something in Spanish. But then the concern is, what are the, how did you manage to uh, work with the rules and regulations of like plagiarism or double publication? Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, there are these kind of logistical challenges of translation that involve um, kind of copyrights, uh, and the, pub, the original publication, you know, that you place the text in. Uh, there's also a financial calculation oftentimes about, you know, how do you um, get the article translated and get that translation paid for? Translation is a labor-intensive exercise that is a specialized skills and deserves to be compensated. You know, I think that you can try, uh, depends on the venue, whether it's a you know, a popular uh, magazine or an academic journal or academic press, 
you know, these are things that can be worked out in negotiations, you know, and so you might be cognizant of that when you're first publishing in English, you might negotiate and say, I'd like to um, retain the Spanish language rights for this uh, and make the case, I think, just uh, that you just did, right, that many of your interviewees would love to read this and it's not going to be accessible in English. They're also not a market that's probably, you know, somehow the publication is going to lose money from, right, they're not a they aren't ever going to uh, necessarily buy the English language publication. Um, you know, and then, you know, I think for me, when I published that piece in the Oaxacan Journal, the Oaxacan Journal co- contacted the Americas, uh, um, obtains the um, Spanish language rights, and then published an acknowledgement, right, that this is a translation of a text that was first published in this journal, right? And so you just kind of make sure that legally you've, um, and and explicitly for the reader, that this isn't a new piece of research, but rather a a translated piece of research. Um, And so that's, that was kind of my experience, but it wasn't, um, it's one that takes effort and energy, right? And I think a lot of people for understandable reasons might not have time to do that. Or um, I was able to obtain research funds to pay, to help pay for the translation. Um, And so, you know, does it is going to um if it's an important priority or ethical principle for uh, an author you have to then kind of find the institutional resources um to make it happen yeah thanks for highlighting all those uh all those issues and benefits as well as the you know the big things which are always time and money um yeah a whole lot of that um but yeah thanks for sharing that with us uh, I was wanting to want, uh, want to ask about your actual experience of writing this book. So it began as a PhD project, and then uh, you spent the last few years turning it into uh, a book publication. I was wondering how you, how you transitioned it from the PhD dissertation into the book publication. Yeah, that's a great question, Jordan. Um, you know, people have different relationships to their doctoral dissertation, but I think in general, doctoral dissertations are written for a small group of people, right? They're written for a small group of specialists. You might have a doctoral committee that you need to satisfy. Uh, and you're kind of thinking, and I think inappropriately, in kind of the narrow terms of specialized research. Um, and, you know, some people move quickly and publish their doctoral dissertations in ways that... Um, maybe aren't substantially revised or changed. But my personal perspective is that a dissertation doesn't make necessarily a strong book because a book is written for a much broader audience. Um, Oftentimes books, I think to be effective need to kind of have a narrative base. Uh, And for me personally, and people have different opinions about this, you don't want a book to be too encumbered by kind of um, narrow uh, academic uh, language. That's just my kind of particular take. And so, you know, I finished my dissertation basically at the beginning of 2013. Uh, I turned a piece of that into that journal article that we were just talking about. Um, But then I spent a number of years basically kind of radically revising and expanding the dissertation uh, into what became the book. And so, you know, I think there's probably three new chapters um, in the book that didn't exist in my dissertation that were 
you know, as, as you can imagine, you know, in, in your graduate research, there's certain topics that you wanted to get to in the, in the research that you didn't quite get to. And so I took the opportunity to expand, you know, I took one dissertation chapter and turned it into two when I thought it was necessary. And the other thing that I wanted to do as a writer was, you know, for me, Oaxaca was a place that I thought was important in terms of scholarship, but I also found just kind of fascinating as a place and a culture. And I wanted the book to try to kind of represent that for, for the readers, right? And if I was kind of inspired and engaged by this place, I wanted to convey that for the reader, right? And so I spent a lot of time trying to think about how could I create a narrative that described the history of Oaxaca um, and that kind of took the reader there and anchored that history and analysis that I was providing in a particular place and time, right? Um, and we could talk about there's different kind of strategies to do that, but that was important to me. Um, and the other thing, I mean, just to, for people who are thinking about this, I mean, one thing that I did deliberately is as I in the kind of as I moved towards the final revisions of the book, is I went about removing the names of scholars from the body text, right? And so if you you know read the book today, you might find I don't know two or three a handful of names of scholars, but basically what I did is took those names and I put them in the notes. I put them in the footnotes because I thought it was more important for the text to be narrative driven and then to place this relevant scholarship in the notes. Um, so that was, you know, that was important for me in terms of making the transition from a dissertation into a monograph or a, a full book. I mean, again, I have no two further questions I want to add to the list uh, from what you said there. Uh, one of the things I did notice that uh, the removal of those names from the book, and as I was pressing Control F on uh, scholars' names, trying to find them later on, they were only coming up in the bibliography and in the footnotes or the endnotes. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was that was I noticed that as I was going through it, and I think it, it that certainly adds to the flow of the reading rather than listening to X says Y and Z says A, and you're just it allows you to to go through it quite fluidly. And I was wondering. Uh, what kind of like what was your experience or learning process and what kind of advice uh, would you give to students for improving the writing style because I find that when talking with a lot of graduate students and even professors they have great ideas and they're fantastic researchers but sometimes the the communication of that research and those ideas fails at the final stage which is the writing process so I was wondering what advice you've got for people uh, based yeah. on yeah, I mean, I think um, being a historian involves a number of skill sets. Uh, one skill set is, you know, primary source research. Another one might be, you know, the ability to synthesize the secondary literature, um, ability to kind of, you know, make claims based on evidence. Uh, and then the other one, as you're describing, is um, effective writing or narration, right? And so we, as scholars, might be uh, strong in one of these skill sets and, and weaker in the other. Um, you know, in terms of my decision to place the scholars and most of the scholarship in the notes, that's driven by um, a basic principle that the historical subject is more interesting than the scholars 
you know, the, the kind of necessarily the, the questions or debates we are having as scholars, right? And, and uh, you know, there, there might be other moments where, you know, people who are engaged in more explicitly theoretical, you know, analysis, it might be appropriate for them. But for me, and the way that I was trained, um, you know, I, I studied with a historian of slavery, Ira Berlin, you know, and this is, this is basically where I got this position, which was that this, the historical subjects or, and subjects are more interesting than us scholars. And so place them front and center and put the scholarship um, to the back. I think one of the things that as graduate students we struggle with is um, you're learning about the scholarship, you're learning about important um, figures in the field. And one of the basic things that we do in graduate study is identify the kind of conversations and debates. And so when we do that, obviously we need to be aware of like, oh, well, um, you know, uh, James Scott makes this argument in, you know, his book, you know, um, Seeing Like a State. And there is this response to James Scott and, you know, uh, et cetera, right? So we are trained to look for those debates and kind of key figures. And then I think at the beginning, oftentimes our writing, um, we are trained to then place ourselves in relationship to those, right? And, and I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that at the beginning, right? I, I think I tell my students, you need to place yourself in relationship to the argument of these scholars, right? But I think in terms of um, narrative prose, later, you know, um, that kind of gets in the way, at least uh, in my opinion. And so I think, you know, my advice for grad students is be, you know, be patient with that process. The other thing I would, of course, say, which is maybe um, not surprising, is you read a lot, right? And if you read a lot, you learn what's good writing and what's bad writing. It's like if you drink a lot of coffee, right? You realize, oh, this coffee is better than that coffee, right? And, once you've drank good coffee, it's it's hard to go back and drink 7-Eleven coffee, right? And so if you if you read a lot, and I would say not just scholarship, but read fiction, read literature, you um, will learn to think about your writing in similar ways. So when I was making the transition from the dissertation to the book, I mean, one of the things that I thought about is, do I have characters in my in my story? Um, you know, and I don't think I ever, anybody in grad school told me to think about it that way, right? But if there are particular people who are important um, to the analysis, can I use their life stories to kind of hang the analysis on, right? And, and so it matters, right? History is driven by people. So if you as a writer can think about, these are these key individuals who might make for compelling um entry points into the story or the analysis. I think those are the kind of, you know, strategies you want to begin to, to employ. And, and you can do that, you know, in graduate school, you don't have to wait until you're, you know, figuring out the book five, 10 years later. Yeah, that uh, point on the characters, using characters throughout the writing uh, reminds me of Helen Sword's uh, book, Stylish Academic Writing which is yeah. towards a wide audience, not just like graduate students, but also professors, because we don't always learn how to write very well. We just learn right. how to research. Um, so it's interesting that you, you raised that, that point there on the using characters. Right. I mean, so, for example, one character that I, I identify in the book is there's a figure named Alfonso Caso, uh, who's uh, a Mexican um, 
uh, he ends up becoming a very important in archaeology, and he is part of the excavation of Monte Alban, this Zapotec site in Oaxaca in 1932. And he, so he's kind of an important figure in that way. Uh, he runs in important political circles. He's married to an important, um, uh, uh, someone from an important political family, the Toledano family. But he also then serves as uh, the director of the Indigenista Institute in Mexico from 1948 until his death in 1970. And so he is this kind of character that can serve as a thread for me, basically about through half of the book, right? And I, I didn't realize that until later in the revisions, right? Like, oh, that this individual is important um, because he helps us understand this broader story, you know? And I'm going to go back to what you'd said at, at the early response, and it's about this disconnect between the PhD and almost reality, which is the writing for a very specialist audience. And I was wondering what you thought about, uh, like, is that does that contribute to the problem of PhD students graduating and then finding it difficult to publish their work, as well as to obtain jobs, which is that they've become so specialised and writing for specialists that have not learned how to actually write for publication and to communicate to general audiences. Right. Yeah, I, th I think you raise a, an important question. I think the first thing that I would say is that I think we have to be unequivocal that um, specialized research is important and necessary to humanity, um, to, to our world. And so, you know, um, we specialize research, whether it's about Latin American history or neuroscience, um, specialized research comes from a need to have, you know, specialized or focused conversations or vocabularies about a particular topic, whether that's in the sciences or the humanities. And so, um, you know, I wouldn't want, particularly coming from a U.S. context where, uh, you know, we have a long tradition of anti-intellectualism in the United States. Um, I think we have to defend specialized research and, um, you know, uh, those kind of narrow academic conversations um, as important and necessary. That being said, I do think that there are times where, for a number of reasons, uh, scholars have tended to use narrow um, vocabularies or specialized mm, kind of jargon in a way that is mm, rather than elucidating something obscures the topic, right? I mean, I think one basic test, right? If you're thinking about, oh, I'm using this theory to understand this problem is does the theory clarify and elucidate or does it obscure right and so i do think that sometimes there's there's a narrowness that's not useful right and there's a kind of you know concept dropping right that is meant to show that you're part of a narrow club mm -hmm. and um that's probably not useful for us uh and i do think that at least in the united states we want to um train people to be able to engage in the broader world and think about how does my specialized research help understand 21st century politics or the persistence of certain inequalities. 
Um, you know, and so I think, you know, I, I hope that answers the question a bit. I think that, you know, we might also sometimes think about different genres of our writing. Um, my journal article in a peer-reviewed journal is going to be a different writing style than an essay I write for, you know, the Washington Post or a, a more popular publication. Uh, and so we, I think, want to take seriously that those different genres of writing, right? And, and maybe as, as you're suggesting, scholars need to try to take more seriously the how do we engage with the broader public, um, both in terms of our own contributions to political discourse, but also in terms of defending the academy as a necessary part of society, right? That we need to kind of make the case for ourselves um, and why, you know, research-based writing is important and valuable and, and necessary. Yeah, I was not trying to say, let's stop doing specialized research. Uh, it was more about how can we do that and at the same time create good prose. So for example, right. your book, specialized research, but well-written, clear right. and easy to follow. So it's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's, uh, I think that's a really important point, uh, Jordan. And, um, you know, one of the things I tell my students is that history is a narrative discipline, mm -hmm. right? And I think for, you know, if you look at the historical scholarship, there's been moments in which historians took narrative seriously and moments, you know, say, you know, at the end of the 20th century, maybe the 1980s, there was a period in which history was becoming a bit more social science-y, right? And kind of quantitative. And those methods maybe dominated more than narrative, um, but I think as you're saying, the sweet spot is, you know, research-based um, work that is, um, you know, clear and engaging prose. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's, it's like any skill, right? I mean, playing a musical instrument or I'm told, you know, playing sports requires practice, right? Good historical writing, you know, requires the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of that. My friend Lonick, who was uh, at grad school with me at Cambridge, and I was pre previously writing with a lot of abstract nouns and jargon. And and one of the things that really resonated with me and it stuck with me ever since is that as historians, we at the pace of it, we tell stories. It's a reductivist kind of overview of history. And you know, if you're standing in front of you know someone who isn't interested in history, you, you always try to pick it up a little bit more than you know what it generally is. So you would never tell someone, I just tell stories. As you would say, I do very serious research in archives and I produce, uh, you know, academic uh, papers. That's important. Right. The, the history. Right. Yeah, and, but I, and I think you're right. I mean, but we don't want to miss that part that fundamentally we do. We are telling stories. And if that is fundamental to the discipline, we've got to take that piece seriously. OK, so I'll go on to my last question, uh, which is really all these things we've been talking about, there's always an implicit uh, like topic that goes through this, which is that this history matters, that this history is relevant. So I was wondering to like what, how you would respond to that question. Why does this history matter? This history of Oaxaca? Right. Well, I mean, one of the basic things that, you know, the questions that the book started with was where did this giant social movement in 2006 come from, right? Um, how to understand it. And so one of the basic answers that I provide is that 
we can understand, in this case, this social movement from the early 2000s um, by looking back at the history of indigenous education and development policy and the creation of positions for bilingual teachers, right, which was an effort to kind of integrate um, indigenous Mexico into national kind of life and politics. And so I tried to kind of, you know, provide a concrete answer to, um, to understanding that to moment in 2006. But I think, you know, the other thing that is I try to discuss and use Oaxacan history to explain is that, you know, we've had lots of debates in the Americas, but I think internationally about the rise of what people call multiculturalism, right? Or some people kind of critics would call neoliberal multiculturalism, but this turn at the end of the 20th century towards kind of official celebrations of cultural diversity or the fact that, you know, England is a, you know, multi-ethnic place, uh, you know, or, um, you know, the World Bank and the IMF celebrating cultural diversity in the Americas. And I think scholars have criticized that as being kind of superficial and hollow in many ways. And while I think that is, has truth, one of the things that I try to use Oaxacan history to show is that there was a kind of cultural pluralism produced by movements of the late 1960s and early 1970s. Um, indigenous activists who engaged with theories of anti-colonialism that were kind of popping off all over the world. And so as indigenous activists in Oaxaca tried to change their own society, they, um, pushed for a kind of more culturally inclusive, you know, um, states and, uh, and society writ large. And so some of the achievements are notions of bilingual education or intercultural education, as it's called in Latin America, right? And part of what I try to use Oaxacan history to say is, while we can critique multiculturalism or our current moment is kind of for its persistence of certain inequalities, we shouldn't mm, overlook the achievements of indigenous activists in Oaxaca or others you know, around the world who did pressure their respective societies to be more inclusive. And I think it's worth us holding on to those achievements um, and not just dismissing them as, oh, everything, you know, neoliberalism has captured you know, these movements and that we can't change things. In some ways, I wanted to use Oaxacan history to show where these moments where people had been able to change um, their societies for the better, even if it was, you know, incremental change. Thank you very much. That's a great way to conclude this as, you know, <coughs> Scottish Centre for Global History shares those goals of trying to increase the presence of world history in order to create a more considerate and inclusive society where we can understand each other and our shared pasts and how we interconnect. Um, so thank you very much, Shane, for taking part in this interview. Thank you, Jordan.